Well, this is going to be part two of our eschatology series, and um, looking forward to getting into it. I've got, again, a lot to cover. I'm, I'm hoping that, that we'll get through it here tonight. Um, but we're going to start with just a little bit of, of review of kind of what we've covered so far. So just this is just an outline of our study. We, we asked, what is eschatology? Why should we study eschatology? And then we, we began last time an overview of future events, things that are going to happen in the future. So just kind of a refresher, what is eschatology? Remember, it's the last things, it's the study of the end times, or it's simply the end. And there's kind of two aspects to eschatology. One is is what we call personal eschatology, which is the study of, of our personal end, what happens to us when we die. That's heaven and hell, um, or even the intermediate state when we die. Right away, immediately, we're with the Lord if we're believers, but we're in a, a temporary place of suffering before we are, we would be, hopefully, I shouldn't say we, right? But before the unbelievers were cast into the lake of fire. That's personal eschatology. And then cosmic eschatology is really what we've been focused on. What happens at the end? What is, what is the end of redemption? How does God's story uh, come to a climax and finish. And so that's what we're looking at with what is eschatology. Now, now we want to just remind ourselves, why do we study this? And I, I gave five reasons last time to study eschatology. And, and there's, there's probably a, a lot more reasons, but these, these are just kind of five reasons, um, that I thought were important. First of all, the end is important. Uh, it's, this is the, we're talking about the end of God's works. We're talking about, um, how God is gonna finish the story. And so we're, you know, we as believers, when we talk about theology, we are studying God and His works, right? So that's, that's what we're all about. And so we wanna know the end of it. What is, what is God gonna do at the end? It's really, really important. And so, um, that's a reason to study eschatology of itself. Another one is that God has revealed these things in Scripture. And whatever God talks about in Scripture is for us and for us to study and to understand. And then remember we talked a little bit about how God reveals sometimes the future so that He can show us that He knows the future so that we can know Him, that He knows the future, and we can see how great and powerful of a God He is. And so that was another reason. Then we talked about, Scripture often does this, the, the doctrine of hell is a, a warning for the wicked. And it's a, it's a severe warning for them that they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ before it's too late. And so Jesus often talks about hell for that very reason, to warn those who are obstinate that if they continue in that path, unless they repent, they will likewise perish. And then another reason to study eschatology is because it's a promise of reward for the righteous. And, uh, and that's a really important one. This is, when we're talking about these things, this is what we are looking forward to as believers, where we're going to spend eternity and how God's going to triumph and, and, and conquer and then even reward us for our faithfulness now. And so that's a, and that's a really, really important one is we want us, we want this not just to be information for us, which 
these lectures are going to be kind of full of information, but we want it to motivate us to live for the Lord here and now. And so that's, that's why we study it. Um, you know, plus it's kind of fun to study, right? So that could be number six. It's a, it is a fun topic. It's an interesting topic. And, um, and so that's, that was kind of a little bit of what we did last time. Now, as we move on here the rest of the time, we're going to spend looking at this overview of future events. And, and again, this is what they call cosmic eschatology. Cosmic eschatology. Um, now, we talked about last time the following things, or, or at least I said that we were going to, we didn't get through it, but we talked about the rapture, talked about the tribulation. We're going to talk about the resurrection or the resurrections, the, the future judgments, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is kind of an order that things are going to happen in. So the, the next thing we're expecting is God's rapture. After that is the tribulation or almost even beginning probably at the very same time. Um, resurrections are happening. Judgments will happen. Marriage supper of the Lamb, the millennial kingdom. We're going to spend some a, a good deal of time talking about that. And then the eternal state. So that's kind of the, the overview of, of future events. And what we did last time was I just described the thing, described the event. Uh, then I talked about what it is and then why I believe it's in the order that it's in. So that's the order that, that I believe that it's in. And, uh, and so I kind of give you the thing, describe it, and then talk about why I think it's in that order. And we're going to review a little bit. And, and in this review, I'm, I'm actually answering questions that, that people brought up from last time. So that's, that's kind of why we're going to spend a little bit more time in review. So let's, uh, let's get into this then. First of all, the first event, the next thing that we're expecting is the rapture. And the rapture is the coming of Christ to gather his church. Primarily talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17 or 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14 and verse 3. And, uh, this is Christ coming to, to meet his church in the air and take us back to be in heaven. And this is an imminent event. This is something that could happen at any moment, at any time that we are just, we are waiting. We're to be waiting for the return of the Lord. And any moment he could come and take us, take his people to be with him in heaven. And so in the rapture, in the rapture, the Lord meets his church in the air and there's an instantaneous transformation of the saints. And we're going to be made to be like Christ and resurrected in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This is going to be a, a, an instantaneous thing. And we're going to return to heaven that where, where Jesus says, where I am, there you may be also. But so we're going to return to heaven that where Jesus is, we will be also with him. And so that's the rapture. And I argued, and this is important in eschatology, that it's a different event then the second coming. There's, there's differences between those texts that seem to talk about what we call the rapture and those that talk about the second coming. And so remember, we went through some of these differences between the rapture and the second coming. In the rapture, and I haven't given you the scriptures again this time, this is just review, but in the rapture, there's a, a coming for the church to take us to heaven. 
Whereas in the second coming, there's a coming of the Lord Jesus to earth to establish his kingdom. The rapture is an imminent event that could happen at any time with, with no signs, no warnings. Those passages don't talk about any signs, but the second coming happens right after the, the tribulation. And remember that in the tribulation, there's, there's signs of his coming. And it's the tribulation is at the end of a seven year period. We know exactly how long the tribulation is. And so there's, there's signs and things that we're called to expect, uh, with the, um, with the second coming, but there's no signs or no warning with the rapture. Uh, other differences between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a, a coming of Christ with no judgment associated with it. The second coming is a coming uh, with judgment, a coming of the Lord to destroy his enemies, followed by the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And, uh, and, and so there's a, a judgment on the nations. Rapture doesn't talk about any judgment. The rapture is a coming of Christ with those saints who have fallen asleep. Whereas the second coming is with his angels and he comes and he gathers his elect. And so the, the rapture coming of Christ with his saints, the second coming is a coming of Christ with the angels. The rapture includes a, a resurrection of those saints who are, are raptured. But in the second coming, there's no mention of a resurrection, at least not uh, at least not immediately. And so there's some more reasons, differences between the, the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a coming to deliver his people from the wrath to come. The second coming is a coming to sit on his glorious throne and to rule on the throne of David. And so the rapture and the second coming seem to be different events. If you, if you look at those scriptures closely, they seem to be different things. And that's really, really important in our understanding of eschatology. Next, I gave uh, reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. And we'll just go over these really quickly. Um, why, why do I believe the, the rapture happens before the tribulation? Number one, for, which we just talked about, the rapture is a different event than the second coming. Therefore, they must occur at different times. And, uh, and so that's one reason why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, Another reason why there's a pre-tribulational rapture is that God promised to deliver his church from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9, and to, according to Revelation 3.10, we're going to be kept out of the, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So Revelation 3.10 is a promise to the church that will be kept out of the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world, and that hour of trial begins in Revelation 6 to 19. It's the wrath of the tribulation. And so we're, we're promised to be delivered from that. And so that means that it's got to happen at the beginning of the tribulation or before the tribulation. Another reason, and, and this is important is, and, and I didn't give this last time, but when you read through the book of Revelation, you read in the first few chapters about all the churches. There's this, the, the, the messages to the seven churches. But then when you get to Revelation 4, 5, 6, all the way to 19, there's no mention at all of the church there. And it would be, it would seem strange that, you know, if the, if the church had, if the church was there, if we were there, we would have a role to play in that tribulation, but there's nothing there to describe it. And so there's no mention of that in Revelation 6 to 19. And also, there's, there's no special word really anywhere in the New Testament where, where the Lord 
tells us how to be ready for this rapture, which is the, or sorry, for this tribulation, which is the, the greatest time of trial ever on the earth. And so if we were going to be going through this tribulation, it would seem that there, the Lord would give us some warnings or some instructions on, on what we should do during that time. But there's really no instructions to us. There's some instructions, though, to the nation of Israel. And here, here it is. This is Richard Mayhew uh, in his article in Christ's Prophetic Plans. He says, the quote, It is remarkable and totally unexpected that John would shift from detailed instructions for the church to absolute silence about the church for 14 chapters describing Daniel's 70th week, Revelation 6 to 19. If, in fact, the church continued into the tribulation, if the church will experience the tribulation of Daniel's 70th week, then surely the most detailed study of tribulation events would include an account of the church's role, but it doesn't. And I think that's a a persuasive reason why there must be a pre-tribulational rapture. Number four, we talked about this, the Thessalonians were expecting to have been delivered from the day of the Lord and they were shaken in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when they thought that they were in the day of the Lord. And then Paul gives them instructions that tells them, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. And he tells them what would be happening if they were in the day of the Lord. And it would seem that what, what, what was happening is the Thessalonians were not at all expecting to have been in the day of the Lord, which is, as we said last time, that's the tribulation. And a fifth reason for a pre-tribulational rapture is the whole doctrine of imminence, the fact that Christ could come at any time. And if, if some aspects of the tribulation had to happen before Christ returns, then how can Christ's coming be imminent? So if we're expecting the rapture mid-tribulation or at some other time in the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, then we would know when Christ's coming is, but we don't know the day of the hour and so there, it, it, this whole doctrine of imminence throughout the New Testament, this, this idea that we need to be ready at any time and that we're not really told to look for anything except for the coming of Christ tells us that there must be a pre-tribulational rapture. Because again, we're, we're going to know the exact length of time that the tribulation is. So the, the, tribula- the rapture couldn't happen at the end of the tribulation. So... Um, and even, even just if we think about that just a little bit more and a little slower, if any of the events that begin the tribulation were happening, then we would know if, if there was, if the tribulation happened at any time other than before the, tri- if the rapture happened at any other time than before the tribulation, we would know that that was happening because we would see the events that are, are described in the tribulation time. Because those, even the beginning of the tribulation time, is there's very specific things that happen there. And, and so we would then know that Christ is coming within the next seven years. And so the, that's why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. So that's the next event, event on the prophetic timetable. Now, let's talk about the tribulation. And this is where we had quite a bit of questions come kind of th- through this week about this tribulation time. So let's talk a little bit more about the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of God's wrath on the world, and it's especially focused around Israel. It's called, by multiple names in Scripture, this tribulation, it's called Daniel's 70th week. Um, It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, 
It's called the Great Tribulation, or even sometimes just the Tribulation. It's called the Wrath of God and the Wrath of the Lamb. Um, it's called a, a time of tribulation in, in three different passages, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And so the tribulation is the worst time ever that happens on the earth. And because these three passages all, all speak about that time as the worst day ever, we know that those passages are talking about the same time on the earth. There's, there's never going to be a time like it. There's never been a time like it that's happened until now. And there's never going to be a time in the future that's like it. And the tribulation is talked about in all of these passages right here. Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Zechariah 12 to, to 14, Matthew 24, 15 to 35, and Revelation 6 to 19. And so if you want to kind of understand more about the tribulation, then just, just read those passages and uh, understand what they're talking about. This is the time when the Antichrist reigns. It's also, he's also called the man of lawlessness. He's called the beast in Revelation 13 and 17. He's called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 and that whole vision that Daniel has in chapter 7. This, this little horn, um, throws out three other horns and seems to kind of rise up as a world leader. Um, in Daniel 9 and 26 and 27, I believe that's talking about him as well. And he's called the prince in that passage. And so this man of lawlessness, we usually call him the Antichrist, but he's only called Antichrist in 1 John 2 and 18. Daniel 7 talks about him here. It says, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Now Daniel here is talking about a, a kingdom, and we know from the context that this, this beast is actually a kingdom. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is the, the Antichrist here, speaking great things. And so he, there's this, this ten-horned beast kind of representing ten major nations in the world. And then this, this little horn rises up and uproots three of the horns, three of the kingdoms. And as we continue then in Daniel 19 in the context, and then, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before the, before which three of them fell. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. And so this is the Antichrist. He's going to be one of the, the greatest leaders in the world history, greater than his companions. And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days come and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And so you see already, or as early as the book of Daniel, this, this little horn is going to rise up. He's going to, he's going to kind of conquer the, the nations of the world. 
He's going to be given this great authority and he's going to make war with the saints. Now this is again, this is focused on Israel. Daniel's an Israelite. He's speaking about his people. And so there's going to be this, this war on the earth, this persecution of the saints until, until the ancient of days come. That's the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possess the kingdom. And so the tribulation is going to happen, like it says here, and then Christ is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom according to Daniel 7, 19 to 22. A little bit later, verse 24, uh, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. That's how we know that they're kings. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. And shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. And remember, that's that's half of the length of the tribulation. Three and a half years. Time, times, and a half times. One time, two times, half a time. That adds up to three and a half times. And so I, I can do that kind of math, uh, no problem. So um, time, times, and a half time, that's speaking about half of the tribulation. He's going to make war against the saints and um, and wear them out. Daniel 9.27, again, talking about this, this Antichrist figure. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For one week, seven years. And for at least according to the context, so a week is a year here in Daniel 9. And for uh, half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so here's this Antichrist figure. He's going to make a, a covenant with many, a strong covenant with many for one week. And then... For half of that time, he seems like he's going to break that covenant. He's going to put an end to sacrifices and offerings that are happening in Israel. And he's going to then set himself up in the temple as some kind of a, in some kind of a blasphemous worship that is called the abomination of desolation. And that's going to happen again until this, this prince, this person is going to be destroyed. The decreed end is going to be poured out on him. So Antichrist is going to rule, it seems, over the whole year. And uh, three and a half years, half of the tribulation period, he's going to, he's going to make this end of sacrifice and offering. He's going to make a, a covenant with Israel, but he's going to break it halfway through. And this, this idea about these desolations and abominations, somehow he's going to set himself up as God or initiate a false religion. And, th- and that's exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 3, where he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is a- revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so here's this man of lawlessness, and he's going to exalt himself above God. Remember, he spoke great things and blasphemies, that little horn. Well, that's what he's going to do, and he's going to set himself up as an object of worship. 
And he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, even proclaiming himself to be God. And of course, the, the world at this time is going to believe the deception of the Antichrist. Now, this brings up a question when we see, we, when we think about this guy. Um, see if I can go back here. No, sorry. When we, um, When we think about this, this guy taking his, him, his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, um, it brings up a question that, that came up from, from some of you is, was this question about the temple. Does the temple need to be rebuilt and, and when does it need to be, be rebuilt? And so the, the answer, at least my answer to that is that yes, the, the temple will be rebuilt. It's, it says right, you know, Paul says, says right there. Now this is before the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD, but, but Paul is, is prophesying and, and really just relying on Daniel here. And, uh, he says that this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness is gonna take his seat in the temple of God. And so the temple will be rebuilt at some point. Now, when is that temple gonna be rebuilt? I have no idea and scripture doesn't actually say much more about it. All, all we know is that at the midpoint of the tribulation, there's going to be um, sacrifices and offering and the Antichrist is going to put an end to it. And so I don't know exactly when. It could happen before the tribulation. could happen now. If it happened now, I wouldn't think the end is coming any sooner because Christ is going to come instantly at any time. But if it happened now, it could be that that's the temple that ultimately will happen. The temple could get rebuilt ten times and destroyed ten times and get rebuilt again at some point during the tribulation. So we, we just don't know. But all we know is that at the midpoint of the tribulation, we're going to see a temple there. And so it could be built during the initial uh, phase of the tribulation or it could be built before that. So thinking about the tribulation, Jesus talks about the same thing. And he says, Matthew twenty four fifteen. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. So Jesus anticipated this thing as happening future to his day. Uh, and the, this abomination of desolation is going to be in the holy place. That, that would seem to be in the temple, again, proclaiming himself to be God. Revelation 13 also talks about this. Uh, he says, uh, it says there, one of its heads, this is talking about the beast here. Now, this, the, these beasts that Revelation talks about are the, the very similar beasts that Daniel talked about. And so we're talking about kingdoms of the earth. And it seems that, that the Antichrist is going to have some kind of a, a mortal wound and then rise again. And so it is going to be some, some almost like phony resurrection with the Antichrist or, or, or maybe, maybe phony, maybe some kind of real, I don't even know, but let's just read it. Revelation 13 here. It says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled and they followed the beast. That is, they followed the Antichrist and they worshiped the dragon. Now, earlier in Revelation 13, the dragon is Satan. And so they, they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. That's the same thing that the little horn did, right, in, in Daniel 7. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now that was, remember, half of the tribulation period. That's going to be super memorable for all you guys now because last time I couldn't add up to 46 and figure out what that was. So, 42. Um, 42 months. Um, so, the, the beast, the Antichrist, is going to utter haughty words, blasphemous words, and he's going to exercise authority for 42 months. Remember, he's persecuting the saints of God at that time. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And although it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so this Antichrist figure is going to have authority satanic authority over every tribe and nation and language and all who dwell on the earth are going to worship the beast and Satan. That is, everyone who doesn't resist that, whose name was written in the, in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And so there's, there are going to be some people there, uh, some saints there that he's going to persecute. But for the most part, the world, it seems, is going to worship Satan, they're going to worship this, this world ruler who sets himself up in the temple of God. And again, notice in verse 7 that he has authority over the whole world. Authority was given it. <clears throat> Continuing on in Revelation, Revelation 13, uh, 11 to 18 tells us about, about another figure that's in the tribulation time. He's called the false prophet. And he does, he's able to do some miracles that cause the world to follow the first beast. And so he kind of, he kind of authenticates the first beast, the Antichrist, and, and the worship of his image that gets set up in the temple. And so we see that in Revelation 13. Here it is. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And so he's, he's in the presence of the first beast and he exercises his authority. And so he's some kind of, uh, associate of the Antichrist. And he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give birth. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free to be marked with the, on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And so this, this, this antichrist figure and this false prophet kind of work together to, to cause everyone to get this mark of the beast 
that's some kind of a mark that, that, that shows that they worship this beast and that they worship really this, this satanic deception. Remember, he, he's proclaiming himself to be God. Now, it would seem that, that all of this happens from Jerusalem. And note that the, the image of the beast is worshipped and, and anyone who doesn't worship is persecuted. Now, again, it's helpful for us to realize that, that at least in my view, and, and I think, um, well, I'd, I'll just say at least in my view that we aren't going to be here at this time when this Mark of the Beast thing is happening. I know that's a, a big concern for people, uh, maybe even especially in our community. Um, but again, just like I said last time, if I'm wrong on my eschatology, just don't worship anything else other than God. Don't worship somebody who says that they're God that goes in the temple and uh, rules the world. Okay, so if that happens, we're not in the kingdom. That's a false deception, satanic deception. You will know when Christ comes in his kingdom because you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven, right? And uh, everyone in the world is going to see that event and there's going to be no doubt about it. He's going to destroy all wickedness and only righteousness is going to rule on the earth. And so um, I think that's just a, a little helpful aside to be to be thinking about. Uh, Paul Benware in his book called Understanding End Times Prophecy, really, really helpful book that, that we had to read in seminary, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, he says this, quote, apparently many in Israel will, will return to their ancient worship system, which was centered in, Jerus- in the Jerusalem temple and which involved animal sacrifices. The temple must therefore be rebuilt, though not necessarily before the start of the tribulation. How the Jewish people will be able to do this, and in the dot 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 here, he says, you know, in light of the the kind of Islamic uh, temple and and stuff like that of the current day, we don't really know. Uh, and when they will rebuild the temple is not revealed. The scriptures simply inform us that at the midpoint of the tribulation, the temple will exist and the Levitical sacrificial system will be in place, but it does not tell us how long it has been going on. And so I thought that was just kind of helpful to answer that question on the temple. Now, another question that came up in light of all this was, was something along the lines of, of this, quote, didn't this happen in AD 70? Didn't the tribulation happen in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed? And that's called the, the view of, of what they call preterism. And, um, and so here, let's just listen to, to Paul Benware again. He says, quote, moderate preterists, example, uh, Sprout. This thing, this thing's changing my, it, that's RC, supposed to be RC Sproul there, but when you type Sproul, it thinks you wanted to write Sprout. So, um, RC Sprout and, uh, and Peter Gentry teach that, that almost all prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction of the Jerusalem, uh, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But they also believe that a few passages do teach a future second coming of Christ and the bodily resurrection of people at that time. They believe that there was a coming of Christ in 70, but not, not the coming of Christ. And again, that's the view called preterism that, that really tries to, to push almost all prophecy except for the resurrection and the eternal state. They, they really put everything else into this category, uh, and they say that it happened in 70 AD. And so somebody asked a question about that. 
Now, this question comes down to what we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the science by which we interpret Scripture. And in order to arrive at a preterist understanding, all or, or most of the events of the tribulation and the second coming, uh, in order to believe that those have occurred, you, you need to interpret these prophecies in a non-literal manner. So we just read a bunch of stuff about the tribulation, right? Verses, little horn, guy blaspheming, and all of those things. Well, the preterists kind of say it all happened in a, in a metaphorical sense in 70 AD. And so they don't take those prophecies too literally. They just say, yeah, well, you know, Christ came, but it wasn't quite like he said it was going to come. It's a little bit different. And, and they kind of just, in my view, they just kind of smooth it over with like a, a little wave of the hand and say, yeah, it all happened in 70 AD because some things happened like that. Sproul even says, and this, this is quoted in that Benware book, but Sproul says, we can interpret the time frame reference literally and the events surrounding the parousia, that's a, a Greek word for coming, figuratively. And, and that's really what they do in order to arrive at this understanding that everything happened already, and the only thing left to happen is Christ coming in a, in a final coming and a resurrection. And, and to get there, they interpret some things that, that fit them literally, and then other things they interpret figuratively. So Paul Benware explains a little bit further. He says, according to Preterists, the key to locating the tribulation in history is the Lord's statement in Matthew 24, 34, where there Jesus declares, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's safe to say that this verse is the foundation of their argument. They believe that if taken literally, this generation must of necessity refer to the people who heard the Lord speak on that Tuesday afternoon on Mount Olivet. It then follows in their thinking that the tribulation must have taken place within a 40-year period, right? That'd be a generation, which leads them to conclude that AD 70 is the fulfillment of the Lord's prophecies on the Mount of Olives. Now, um, I think that's, that's really is the key. And actually just to, just to kind of let you know, a few people asked, what, what does this generation refer to in Matthew 24, 34? And so let's go look at that. Matthew 24, let's read verses 32 to 34. And again, pretty much everything is going to be on the screen for you there tonight. But Matthew 24, 32 says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, he says, this generation, There's the, the this is kind of the key phrase for preterism, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what things are we talking about when we say all these things? What things are we talking about? Well, all the events of the tribulation. And those events are described in Matthew 24, starting at, depending on your view, starting either at verse 4 or starting at verse 15. And the, and, and that section goes from Matthew, I, I would say Matthew 24, 15, until Matthew 24, 35, that section talks about the tribulation. 
And so all the events of the tribulation from Matthew 24, 15 to 35 is what Jesus is talking about here. And then he says, this generation won't pass away until all those things take place. And so, again, when, now, if we harmonize what Matthew said, remember Matthew talked about the abomination of desolation? Daniel talked about the abomination of desolation. Second Thessalonians is described it further. And, um, and then Revelation 13 also talked about it. So when we harmonize those passages, what, what Jesus is saying here is that all the events of the tribulation have to take place And the generation that sees all of those things is not going to pass away until until every bit of it happens. And that, to me, that actually argues best for a seven-year, a seven-year tribulation period, just like Daniel and Revelation and all of those books talk about. And so the idea then, who is this generation? It's the generation that sees all those things. And that makes total sense if we understand the tribulation is a seven-year period. Now, all of these things simply haven't happened yet. We, we just read about them. We've never seen a, a world ruler who set himself up in the temple of God. The temple's been destroyed since 70 AD. There's no chance that, that all of those things have happened yet. And so the, the, you can't make this work except as a future event unless you drastically spiritualize all of those things that happen in the tribulation. And so again, Ben Ware says, it must be remembered that in 70, no image was set up in the temple. No man sat in the Holy of Holies and proclaimed himself to be deity. No period of three and a half years took place between the abomination and the coming of the Messiah. No time existed for Israelites to flee the city after the temple's destruction by the Romans, which is, which is written about, um, in Matthew 24. We'll flee the, flee that area. Um, something required by the Matthew 24 text. The differences between Matthew 24 and, uh, T- Titus uh, Vespasian, um, destruction of the temple, Titus Vespasian's destruction of the temple are great. And I would, I would even just go a little bit further just to say the, the differences between the tribulation and what happened in 70 AD, they are great and, and there's no way to make it fit. And so, so, um, that to me proves that preterism is wrong, that, that these events must be future events. Now, I do believe that in the book of Luke, and, and this isn't even in my notes, so I can't do it, but in the, in the book of Luke, there is a, a little section of, of Luke's Olivet Discourse that does talk about what's going to happen in 70 AD, but, but the majority of, of the, the and, and really all of the Matthew 24 and all of the Mark passage um, are talking about future things that haven't happened yet. They simply haven't happened yet. Now, um, kind of tied with this, I, I got a question from somebody that, that asked this, they said, what about the, st- the strange coincidence that Nero's name can be transliterated into 666? So Nero is the, was kind of tied with the, the destruction of the temple. And so there, you know, there's this question, I guess, that somehow his name can be transliterated into 666. Well, let's, let's just follow Benware again for this. He says, it's true that in the Revelation passage, the reader is instructed to calculate the beast's number. 
And that's in Revelation 13, 18. Modern preterism's use of number mysticism puts this view on shaky ground. In this case, preterists use a Hebrew spelling of Nero's name, Nero Caesar, in order for the numerical value of the name to add up to 666. The name must be transliterated into Hebrew, which would be rather strange to John's Greek-speaking audience. One wonders why the preterists try to be so literal with this number when so many of the numbers in Revelation are dismissed as symbolic. So preterists kind of want to tie the 666 and the, the mark of the beast back to Nero. And the way that they do it is by taking the Greek name Nero Caesar. So they, they take Nero Caesar, which Nero had many titles and many, and many names. Okay. So, but they take, they take Nero Caesar because if you take Nero Caesar, they can make it work and add up to 666. They take it from Greek and then they put it into Hebrew and Hebrew letters have number values and they spell it just right. And actually some people would say they actually kind of misspell it. And if you misspell it a certain way, you can have Nero Caesar spell or add up to 666. And then they say, ah, there you go. It all happened in 70 AD and it was Nero who's the, the beast. And so, um, you know, the person who asked me about this, asked me this question said, what about the strange coincidence? And, you know, it's almost not even a coincidence when you kind of work it that crazy to, to make it come up to 666. So that's what I would say about that. I would say, I, I think this, this number mysticism is probably the right way. Now, whatever the mark of the beast is in the 666, I think people are going to know it when it happens. But, um, yeah, don't, it's, it's, it's on very shaky ground to think that Nero Caesar is, is the right title for Nero and then that you got to put it into Hebrew and then add it up with the, and the vowels, there's a couple different vowels that you can use. And if you use the certain vowels to get the right number, you can somehow make it add up to 666. I haven't actually seen it anywhere. So I, I, I don't know much more about it than that, but I, I, I think it's basically just pretty shaky ground. So what the, what the preterists see though, is they see a coming of Christ in 70 AD, but instead of Christ coming, like scripture says, to conquer his enemies, he comes to destroy the temple and, and preterism actually has Christ coming, but Christ didn't come in 70 AD. So how do they get him coming? Well, they say, well, he came through the Roman army and through the Roman army, Christ, through the pagan Roman army, Christ came and, um, didn't come personally to earth, but he came through the Romans and destroyed the temple. And um, he, his coming then doesn't establish the kingdom or bring in righteousness or do any of the things that the coming of Christ is said to do in Scripture. And so um, the the preterists also have trouble explaining the signs of Christ's coming. So the, the in Matthew 24, there's talks about these signs that are going to happen when Christ comes. The sun's going to go dark. The stars are going to fall. The the moon's not going to give its light. It, um I think it's Joel chapter two, but it might be somewhere else talks, talks about it's going to be a unique day where there's, there's the light's going to be like no other day. Um, well, the, the preterist has to kind of just say, well, it was a dark and sad day. And so, and so when the, when the Romans conquered and, and crushed the temple. And so that's, that's what the darkness is. It's a, it's a metaphorical darkness, not a literal darkness. So, um, Preterism is not a good view, uh, in my opinion. That's, that's the summary of that. Here's the verse that I was 
talking about Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after the tribulation, immediately after, very important word there, immediately after, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, this is what's going to happen when Christ returns. And it's going to, I think it's going to literally happen. I think the sun, immediately after the seven year tribulation, there's going to be a, t- a moment where the sun goes dark, the moon doesn't shine, the stars fall. There's, I don't know what it means that the powers of the heaven will be shaken, but there's going to be a sign of the Son of Man. Some people think it's His glory appearing in the sky. And the nations, the, all the nations of the earth are going to mourn because they've been resisting Him throughout this tribulation period. And then He's going to come with great power and glory, not through the Roman army or some other army, but Christ himself is, is literally going to come and he's going to gather his elect and he's going to establish his kingdom. And so um, I think that that's, that's much better than, than the view of, of the preterists. And, and they just, they can't really explain that did not happen uh, immediately after 70 AD. Nobody, nobody says it did unless they, they say it happened metaphorically. So, that was the rapture, that was the tribulation, now let's talk about uh, the second coming, the second coming of Christ. Um, and, and last time we, we did talk about this as well, so we've been mostly just reviewing so far and, and answering questions, but last time we talked about the, the second coming, and at the end of the tribulation, immediately after that seven year period, Christ returns to earth to conquer his enemies in the battle of Armageddon. This coming includes cosmic signs that we just talked about, the darkened sun and moon, stars falling, the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven. And last time when we looked at this, we looked at it in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 describes the second coming of Jesus Christ and, and really all of those events with it. Matthew 25, 31 also uh, talks about this, and it says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, I think it's talking about that same coming that we saw in Matthew 24, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's going to come, and then he's going to sit on his glorious throne. I, I believe this is the throne of David that was prophesied. And he will sit then at that time, when he comes, not before he comes, but when he comes, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Christ is going to come and he's going to sit on his throne. There's going to be a judgment of the nations and the righteous, the the believers at that time that are on the earth, tribulation saints, those who have been persecuted through the tribulation, they are going to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And that's really the same order of events that we saw 
in Daniel chapter 7. Antichrist during the tribulation, and then there's a reign. Now we also see this exact same thing in Zechariah chapter 14, the second coming of Christ. So Zechariah 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out against, sorry, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So this is speaking here about the end of the tribulation period. And Christ is going to come and his feet are going to be on the Mount of Olives. Now, there is no way that 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 can have happened in 70 AD. And he's going to fight the nations that gather against Jerusalem and there's, this is when the, the people are to flee, uh, into this, into this valley, just like Jesus says in Matthew 24. Well, we're continuing then verse six. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a, the, there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Now that is, I think, what Matthew 24 is talking about with the sun darkened and all that. It's a, it's very, very similar. On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, because the mountains just split or whatever. It shall continue in summertime as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So, there you go. The, there's a there's a, a battle, Armageddon. The Lord comes, and now He's going to be King over all the earth, starting at that time. Continuing in verse ten, then the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell security, securely, or in security. So notice here, when the Lord comes, he's going to set up his kingdom from Jerusalem, and it's, there's never again going to be a decree of destruction for Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall dwell in Security. And I just, you couldn't say that about any time up until the present. So the second coming happens, and then we enter into the millennial kingdom. The, the, the kingdom is going to be established. And we can see this millennial kingdom in uh, Revelation chapter 20. The coming of Christ is, is connected to his kingdom reign, and, and we too 
our promise that we will reign with Christ over a renewed earth. And this reign, according to Revelation 20, is for an initial thousand years. It's for a thousand year period. So Christ is going to come. That was in Revelation 19, right? Second coming of Christ. Revelation 19, battle of Armageddon. Revelation 20, let's, let's look what happens. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Notice the result here. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here we have Satan is seized by some giant angel and he's put into this pit and the pit is shut and it's sealed over. And the result of this incarceration of Satan is that he will no longer deceive the nations. Now, if you have a view of eschatology, anything other than the premillennial view, which is what I've been teaching you, then, then you believe that Satan right now, today, is, you, you believe you're, that we're in the millennium, first of all, that this is the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, uh, a spiritual version of it. But Satan is in a pit, and it's shut, and it's sealed, and the reason that it was sealed is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so the, the amillennialist and postmillennialist interpreters have to kind of reckon with this, this verse. And how is it that Satan's in this pit that he can't deceive the nations, but then he's deceiving the nations. He's the God of this world. He's darkened the minds of unbelievers. Um, he's, he's involved in temptation and all of those kinds of things. Um, and so, I think it's best to just take this more literally. And this happens when, after Christ returns. After Christ returns, this thing is going to happen. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And let's just continue then. Then I saw thrones. I'm in verse 4 now. Revelation 20, this is 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the, the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so if we just understand this in, in the, the way that it seems to be understandable, Christ returns, Satan is bound, he's going to be put in that pit for a thousand years, no longer deceive the nations. There's going to be a resurrection here of the tribulation saints, is what this is talking about. Those who hadn't worshipped the beast but it's also going to include us as well who have already been resurrected at the rapture. And we are all going to come and we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Six times in this passage, a thousand years. They will reign with Christ, reign with him for a thousand years. 
And so that's the, the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is sometimes called the intermediate kingdom because it's, it's kind of like a, a bridge between um, the current age and the age to come. Okay, so that we're in the current age, what I would call the, the, the we're in the present age. Um, there's an age to come, but the, the millennial kingdom is kind of like uh, a bridge. It's an intermediate time. It's a, a thousand year period. And in this thousand year period, God is going to fulfill all his promises to Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, and he's going to fulfill his original plan for the original earth through Jesus Christ, who's going to reign as the king of the world in that time. That's the millennial kingdom. Now, all millennial and, and post-millennial interpreters, and, and to a lesser degree, historic premillennial, but I'm not going to talk about that much, but all millennial and post-millennial interpreters do not believe that there was going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ over the earth. Now, um, what I'm talking to you about right now is, is pre, you can't read my writing, but it's, it's pre-millennial. Um, so there's, there's three different, at least three different views on the millennium. There's all millennial, post-millennial, and pre-millennial. All millennialism, let's talk about that just briefly. All millennialism teaches that, that we are currently in the millennium in which Christ reigns in the hearts of his people. So if you are, if you're all millennial, then you believe that Christ reigns now in the hearts of his people and that this is the millennium. The thousand years of Revelation 20, they, they would say is, should be interpreted symbolically and it's not a thousand year period, right? It's been 2,000 years since Christ came. But, it, that, but that's not a big deal. It's, it's to be symbolically interpreted to mean just a, a long time. The throne of David upon which Christ is to reign is, is moved from the land of Israel on the earth to the hearts of true believers on the earth. Or sometimes they say, no, no, it's actually in heaven where this reign happens, where Christ is reigning in heaven over the hearts of his people in heaven. That's, that's all millennialism as I understand it. Here's um, better explained by Dr. Michael Vlock. He says, quote, all millennialism asserts that the millennium of Revelation 20 is being fulfilled spiritually now between the two comings of Jesus Christ. Christ is reigning in his millennial kingdom now. Also, According to all millennialism, Satan is currently restrained in his ability to deceive the nations, but he is still active. So he's bound, they gotta say that, cause Revelation 20's talked about him being bound, but he still can, he's, he's not, he's not bound fully, cause he's just only restrained in his ability to deceive the nations, but he's still active. The millennium will end with Jesus' second coming. Then there will be one general resur- resurrection and judgment for all believers, and unbelievers, and then the eternal state. So they, they see the millennium now, Christ returns, uh, and then everything else happens. Resurrections, judgments, eternal state begins. They don't see an intermediate state. If there is an intermediate thing, it's right now, Christ is reigning. Um, all millennialism affirms that Jesus' millennial kingdom is now in timing and spiritual in nature. So if you're all millennial, the millennial kingdom is spiritual, not, not physical, not, and really has nothing to do with Israel. Israel 
has been replaced by the church, and there's this spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of true believers. Uh, Richard Mayhew describes it similarly. He says, all millennialism teaches that the church is now spiritual Israel, having inherited God's promises to Abraham and David that were forfeited by Israel because of continued disobedience. Christ rules over this spiritual kingdom from heaven and the redemptive world of Christ continues on earth. I wonder if that was supposed to be word. Um, Christ rules over this spiritual kingdom from heaven and the redemptive, uh, yeah, probably word of Christ continues on earth. So that's what all millennialism teaches. There's this replacing of of Israel with the church. Let's talk about post-millennialism a little bit. Post-millennialism, what is that? Post-millennialism teaches that we are currently in the millennium as well and that this age will increasingly be Christianized and then the end will come. And so there's going to be this, what they call a, often a golden age. Christ will come after post the establishment of the spirit, um, of the spiritualized kingdom on earth. So all millennialism is kind of like there's no kingdom. Although they say, yeah, there is a kingdom, but it's kind of like now we're in the kingdom now. That's all millennialism. No kingdom. Ah, no. Post-millennialism says that Christ is going to return after the millennium. And they have, again, they have a very similar spiritualized millennium, a spiritualized kingdom. um, And Christ comes after. He comes post that kingdom. Premillennialism says Christ comes before the kingdom and he, Christ, establishes the kingdom on earth in the literal fulfillment of what God promised to, to the patriarchs. So po- back to postmillennialism. Postmillennialism kind of looks to this golden age. There's going to be a revival and then we're basically going to establish the kingdom on earth and then when it's established, Christ is going to come. And again, the thousand years of Revelation 20 is interpreted symbolically. The throne of David upon which Christ is to reign is moved from the land of Israel again, from the earth to the increasingly Christianized world. And so the, 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 the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ is kind of going to get built up in this expanding thing. And then Christ is going to return. That's post-millennialism. Post-millennialism sees the return of Christ happening after a golden age or after the world has been Christianized by the spread of the gospel Postmillennialism, like all millennialism, spiritualizes or allegorizes the prophetic passages that speak about a future reign of Christ over the nations. So they, they, they interpret those prophetic passages in a different way than they interpret other scriptures, um, in the Bible. So that's, that's kind of a, just a, a brief summary of what all millennialism and post-millennialism. Both views have difficulty, at least in, in my understanding, both views have difficulty explaining Revelation 20 and the Old Testament passages that speak about the Messiah's reign. Um, Richard Mayhew explaining post-millennialism, he says, quote, post-millennialism teaches that the kingdom of God is currently being advanced with increasing triumph in the world through the pre- through the gospel preaching and the ministry of the church, Christ now rules over this golden age of undetermined length from heaven and will return to earth at the end, thus a post-millennial return. 
The church is considered to be spiritual Israel, having inherited the promises made to Abraham and to David, which were abrogated or, or forsaken or given up for Israel because of their national disobedience. Therefore, there will be no future for a national Israel with any biblical significance. And that's really for both all millennialism and premillennialism. No, no future for national Israel. And especially this idea of national Israel. Some, some all millennialists will believe in a salvation for Israel or for some Israelites, but not a, a restoration of Israel. And that, that's really important. So, um, all millennial and premillennial, there's no future for national Israel with any biblical significance. When Christ returns at the end of the millennium, then the rapture, second advent, general resurrection, and judgment all take place in rapid sequence, and finally comes the eternal state. And so with both amillennialism and premillennialism, they just believe that there's this time now, and they're either more optimistic or less optimistic about this time, right? It's either postmillennial is pretty optimistic about it's going to get better and better and better, and then Christ is going to come all millennialists are a little more pessimistic. They, you know, they recognize sin in the world to a, a greater degree. But for both of them, the, the time period that's now is the, 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 the current age. And then in the age to come, everything happens. The rapture passages are, are going to happen at the same time as the second coming. That's the second advent. All the resurrections happen. Everything happens in one moment and then, and the end comes. And so there's basically the, the current age, and the age to come in both of those views. Now, one of the biggest issues in, in determining this millennium question is the, is the issue of hermeneutics. How should we interpret the prophetic literature? And this is a, another question that, that came up through this, this time. Um, the, the relationship, um, how do we interpret prophetic literature? I gotta just see which, where I am here. <clears throat> And there's really two key things here in this hermeneutics. There's number one, the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the second thing that, that, that's really instrumental in our understanding of, of the millennium is this question of, is there a prophetic hermeneutic or should we translate prophetic passages as we translate the rest of scripture? So what, what all millennial and post-millennial interpreters do is they they give a, a priority to the New Testament, whether whether right or wrong. Um, they give a priority to the New Testament passages, and they look at what the New Testament says, and then they go and they reinterpret the Old Testament passages in light of the New Testament, or in light of what they believe the New Testament teaches. And when they come to these prophetic passages, they use a different hermeneutic, a different interpretation style to interpret those passages from what they do to interpret the rest of Scripture. And so they come to a, a prophetic passage and they they interpret it in, in almost an allegorical or a, a spiritualized sense. Now, Michael Vlock is, is kind of arguing against the this all millennial, and, and he, he's called, talking about dispensationalism here, uh, which, which if, at least in Michael Vlock's view, in my view, the, the dispensationalism that we hold to, and I'm not going to even define that word right now, but um, 
basically Michael Vlock is, is giving the premillennial view. And so he's talking about what I would believe as well. And it, this is what he says. He says, dispensationalists desire to give justice to the original authorial intent of the Old Testament writers as discovered by historical grammatical hermeneutics. Historical grammatical hermeneutics. Non-dispensationalists, on the other hand, emphasize the New Testament as their reference point for understanding the Old Testament. In other words, they start with the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. So what what we do, what, or at least what we try to do is, and what I think is the right way to interpret all of Scripture, is to use what we call historical grammatical hermeneutics. We're interpreting Scripture with using the facts of grammar, you know, just using the way language works and the, the knowledge that we have of history and, and we interpret Scripture in, in what's often called the literal way, um, but it, it's not necessarily literal, literalistic. We, we recognize, you know, word plays and we recognize elements of prophecy, but we non-dispen, we dispensationalists are, are trying to understand the authorial intent of the Old Testament passages. So we're going, just like we try to understand the authorial intent of Matthew or Mark or Luke or whatever we read in the New Testament, we come to the Old Testament and we come to the prophecy passages and we're just trying to understand what the author said. Even in the New Testament, when we come to Revelation, what did John say? What does it mean that there's going to be a resurrection? What does a thousand years mean? And if there's nothing in the passage that says we need to interpret that some other way, then we just interpret it with what we would call the plain sense. So that's where the, the difference comes down to. Um, that's the same quote there. Let's go to the next one. Michael Vlock's kind of continuing. Thus he says, non-dispensationalists start with the New Testament to understand Old Testament prophetic passages. And the New Testament is the lens for viewing the Old Testament. This is what often leads to a non-literal understanding of Old Testament texts, since non-dispensationalists believe that the New Testament sanctions less than literal understandings of Old Testament passages, especially prophetic texts about Israel. So the, the non-dispensationalists, they, they, um, they believe that the, the New Testament Quotes of the Old Testament allow us to understand what the Old Testament passages said in non-literal ways. So that they've got a different lens as they look at the Old Testament passages. Now here are, I think these are really helpful quotes from all millennial interpreters. And here's what they say. So this is Richard Mayhew, and he's going to quote O.T. Alice here. Um, but Richard Mayhew says, quote, even covenantalists, so all millennial, post-millennial interpreters, admit the correctness of the premillennial outcome if a consistent normal hermeneutic is used. So if we under, if we interpret the Bible the way that, that we normally do anywhere else, even the, the all millennialists and post-millennialists will agree that we would end up with a premillennial view. So O.T. Alice, in his book, Prophecy in the Church, says, quote, the Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in the present age. So he's looking at the passages about the kingdom of God and he says, if we interpret those literally, they can't be fulfilled in the present age. Here's another one. Uh, Floyd Hamilton 
in his book, The Basis of the Millennial Faith. He says, quote, Now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. So if we literally interpret the Old Testament, just like we literally interpret Matthew, Mark, Luke, or whatever, Floyd Hamilton, in his uh, all-millennial book, says that we would, we would end up where the premillennialist pictures. Uh, Lorraine Botner, kind of a, a famous Reformed um, theologian, uh, I've got his book on, uh, on predestination and uh, a great book, his book, The Meaning of the Millennium, he says, quote, it is generally agreed that if the prophecies are taken literally, they do foretell a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine, got a spelling mistake there, with the Jews having a prominent place in that kingdom and ruling over the other nations. So Lorraine Botner says, if we take that literally, if we look at those prophecies and we interpret them literally, we're going to end up with a restoration of national Israel in the land of Palestine with the Jews having a prominent place in the kingdom and ruling over the other nations. But then he's going to say, uh, but something like the New Testament tells us that that would be, that would be silly to do that. Um, and I would say that the New Testament, if we actually look at it, tells us that that's exactly what we should expect as well. Okay, well, it is now 8.30, and um, I have about another hour and a half of material that I would just really want to teach. <laughs> so... Um, So this is a great moment for you guys to kind of just get to know. This is kind of, this is, I guess this is how I go. Um, I was kind of nervous I wouldn't have enough this time, so I added some more. But I answered your questions that you had. Um, ne- next time, next time's going to be the, the really important one. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to maybe do a little bit less review unless you guys have more questions that come in. Because I, I want to answer your question. It's for you. I don't, I don't just do this for me. Um, it's for you. But we're going to look at all of the Old Testament prophecies that talk about the millennial reign of Christ and the, the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and then through the prophets in, in Zechariah and Hosea and, and Jeremiah and um, Daniel. And we're, and we're going to look at what they say about this millennium. And what we're going to see is that that... Scripture promises a reign of Christ from the throne of David in Israel over the earth for a, a, a period of time that is not the eternal state. It just doesn't quite fit the, the eternal state, but it's also not anything like what's happening now in the world. And so we're going to look at those Old Testament passages. And you know what? I don't have it in my notes yet, but I, what I will do is I will, we'll look at all those passages and then I'll add a little bit more to my notes. So we might have a few times that we do this and that, uh, I'm okay with it if you are. If you're not okay with it, you can, I guess you can register your complaint with the complaint department or whatever you do there. Um, but, um, I'm going to add the passages in the New Testament 
that supposedly teach us that we should interpret it those differently. So we're going to look at what do those say. Then we'll go, then I'll actually take you to the New Testament and say, what, is there any passages in the New Testament that say we should, we should totally rearrange the way that we understand what we see in the Old Testament? And unless my mind is changed next month or so, I'll say no. Um, there's nothing. And then we'll, we'll see what happens in the, the millennium. And then once we understand the millennium, then we can look at the judgments and see that there's actually not just one judgment, but multiple judgments and multiple resurrections that happen. Um, and then we would be through the, the kind of outline that we have. So, but it's 834 and uh, there's just like, it would be ridiculous for me to try to go through. I have slides 79, 64 to 79 that are just quotes from scripture from the Old Testament. So there's just no way that we'll get through those. So, um, thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. Uh, let's just close in prayer. Lord, thank you for these things and, um, heavy things, a lot of thinking, probably pieces of the puzzle that need to kind of fit together that, that are maybe confusing for us. Just pray that you would help us to understand, uh, the end times and that our, our study again wouldn't just be so that we know all of these details, but that it would really make us long for the end of the story and for what you're going to do. Um, we thank you, Father, that you ultimately win, that you will conquer your en- enemies no matter what view we have. And we thank you for that. And we look forward to it. And we pray that you would help us to set our, our minds and hearts on heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.